Scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray now that you would grant grace to us to hear, to listen, and most assuredly uh, to believe. I pray, God, that you would be with us as we think this through together, that we would learn this great, deep, but satisfying truth about you and that it would inform our lives as we walk with you and live with each other. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Daniel, please, in chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And you've been now well trained to listen long. So I always debate whether to read the whole chapter, try to find spots, and then I say, no, I just can't not read the whole chapter. And so that means you can't but listen to the whole chapter. So this is the word of God. May it satisfy your soul. Listen, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. If it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these, I saw... And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it uh, was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion... Be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliness of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Well, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you, Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw 
which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruits abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded. To leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king. Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace, of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by, mighty, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While well, the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, let's get right to it. What Nebuchadnezzar testifies to, what he learns is of the sovereignty and the greatness of God. Look how he puts it. In the very beginning, he kind of summarizes what's to come. He he summarizes in these opening verses what he's going to find out, what he's going to learn, what he's going to testify to. And what he's going to testify to are, verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom that is God's. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, meaning it's always been and always will be, which is a great pronouncement. It's saying there's an eternal one. There's the one who is God over all things. And this is the God of whom I'm speaking. Daniel's God, the true and living God, the God of Israel. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then again, in the middle of verse uh, 34, he says this of God, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. That is, no one can correct him and or say to him, what have you done in being in criticism of him? You see, he's the one who has sovereign over all. He determines in this mysterious way that God works all things. And compared to him, the inhabitants of the earth are nothing, right? We're made by him, so we haven't the stuff of God in us. In that sense, we're not God. He is. And he does according to his own will, and no one can question him. And then in verse 37... He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right. He says, this is my testimony. I'm seeing that everything that he's done is right. Even making me an animal will come to a minute or like an animal. For all his works are right and his ways are just. That is, they're, they're, they're justified. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That. He really knew. And if Nebuchadnezzar had read this passage, when he got to that point, those who walk in pride he is able to humble, he would have said, along with those of a previous generation, here endeth the lesson. That is, that's what I came to know. Because you see, there was a time, verse, what is it? 29 tells us that he looked around. Now notice he didn't look up, but he looked around. And in his looking around, he saw the city that he had built. And so he puts it like this. Is not this the great Babylon, which I've built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, and, and, and Babylon was great. I don't think I have a category in my brain for how great the city was and how great... A king, Nebuchadnezzar, was. There was no known threat to him. The time in which he said this. No known threat to his safety, to his wealth, to his position, to his power. As he looked upon Babylon, it was a beautiful and a great city. One of the, one of the wonders of the ancient world was the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. The wall that surrounded the city was built so high and, and especially so wide it was said that a four-horse chariot could turn around on top of it. And that's what he was seeing. That's what he was looking at. And when he was looking around, he essentially said, Am I not great? Now, he should have been thinking a bit otherwise because 12 months earlier, even in the midst of his own greatness, even in the midst of his ease and prosperity or his contentedness and his security, he became troubled. And that's a fascinating juxtaposition of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar's station in life. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I was content and, and uh, prosperous. I was safe and secure. And then I saw a dream that made me afraid. I mean, you can see, even in his life, this person against, there was no real threat. I mean, he didn't have to worry about losing his job. He didn't have to worry about being downsized. He didn't have to worry about another army. He didn't have to worry about anything, really, as we would understand worry. And yet still, that ease and prosperity, that contentedness and safety was tenuous. It could be disrupted. And it could be disrupted by his sleep. I don't know about you, and I don't know if this is common to everyone, but it's certainly true for me. When there's something deep within that concerns me, no matter how much I gloss over it, no matter how good it looks on the outside, no matter how good I think it is, if there's something really troubling, I can't sleep. Now, I don't have dreams. Well, I do have dreams. They're just not cool dreams like he has, you know, that God is speaking and interpret. I have... Well, I've described some of them to you before, and I don't think we want to go there. But they're, they're, they're not really helpful. But they do show that within me there's dis-ease, if you will. There's something wrong. I can't sleep. And so he's awoken by this 
by this dream, you see, and it troubles them. And we've gone before with Nebuchadnezzar and dreams, and so he brings his magicians in and, and all of that, his dream team, as we call them, to, to describe his dream, interpret his dream to him. And, of course, they can't. Actually, as you read through this dream, I'm not so certain they couldn't, but they didn't want to. You know, uh, Daniel didn't want to. He didn't want to tell the king what the dream was. And the, and the king looked at Daniel and said, I see you're a little concerned about this. You don't want to tell me. And, and Daniel basically says, in our own idiom, uh, would basically said, hey, King, I wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy. I don't, you know. And so, so, so they couldn't tell him. So Daniel, of course, is called in to tell him. Amazing, and we won't go into this, but it's amazing the, how Daniel was perceived by Nebuchadnezzar as the, as the best of his magicians. And yet here was this, this Hebrew who had been in the city of Babylon working, if you will, under the, under the eye of the king in the dream team department. And, and, and he was known by the king, uh, not as a prophet of God per se, though he would become that to him, I'm sure, but, but the greatest of his magicians. So anyway, there's Daniel and he's, he's able then because he's in this position to influence the king and he, and he, he gives him the interpretation of this dream we see it it's it's rather straightforward but but he says you know this great tree that you see reaching to the heavens that really feeds everyone and shelters everyone this great kingdom that's you that's what's happened there's echoes of eden in this isn't there this great tree this great city this this sheltering this feeding you 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 have dominion over this vast kingdom and empire Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, that's that's you, but it's you are going to be chopped down. And he says the chopping down will come. Now, the good news is the stump's going to be left, so you get some sense. And the stump's going to be left until something else takes place. But but still, you're going to be chopped down in the midst of all this uh, King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. This This dream has said it. And, and then you're going to become like an animal, really. And uh, you're going to graze on the palace lawn. And, uh, and it's going to happen for seven periods. We don't know how long a period is, so we don't know what that means exactly. Some would take it to seven years, some would take it to seven months, some would take it to seven seasons, which would be a year and three quarters. But whatever it is, it, it's, a, it's a, a, a designated time period, seven of them. And it's, you know, we want to get into the whole number thing in the Bible. Seven is a significant number, but, but I don't think that's necessary for us to, to know and to think through. But, but all of this will take place. And, and, and then... He says that uh, after a, a time, then this will be uh, restored. And so he gives them in verse 27 of the first chapter, um, counsel. It's, it's the counsel of, of repentance, really. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be, accept, be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquity by showing mercy. So sins and iniquities, righteousness and mercy to the oppressed. So that perhaps there can be a lengthening of this Prosperity. We don't know exactly, I don't know exactly what Daniel meant by that. Did he, did he mean, you know, uh, be compassionate and merciful uh, to the oppressed and, and this period of prosperity will go on until this dream is fulfilled or, or perhaps afterwards, whatever. He's just saying this is the, the, the point of your self-centeredness, the point of your pride, King, is that you've disregarded all those in need. It's caused you to be a person who has no mercy and no real compassion. So repent and, and be a compassionate human being, at least to these others. But a year later, Nebuchadnezzar finds himself still self-absorbed, still marveling at his own wisdom, marveling at his own strength. And, uh, and marveling at what he has done and glorying in himself. And so, in the midst of his glorying, there isn't a dream this time and an interpreter. There's a voice. And it comes directly then to him and says, what you had dreamt a year before is now going to happen. And it does indeed happen. He does become like an animal. There he is out, I suspect, in the palace 
yard in the fields there eating grass. Uh, his, his hair is growing wildly, his nails Howard Hughes-like, at least that's what I think. Or, you know, that kind of, those kind of nails like bird claws. And if you would go by the palace, you wouldn't think that's the king. You would think he's crazy. He's subhuman, it appears, at that, at that point. Now, of course, we shouldn't be too hard on Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. I mean, that's the sin of sins, really, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his little mere Christianity, calls pride the great sin. I mean, that's the sin that, that, that we see uh, manifested in the Garden of Eden, really, this sense of, of pride. I can be like God. I can put myself in the position of God. That was, the, that was the temptation that Adam and Eve fell for, if you will. That's the temptation that you and I fall for. That's why I read out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, this, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8 earlier in the service. It's a, it's a, it's a passage that I go to a lot. Uh, uh, in my own life and for us even as a congregation. This sense where God has just, think about this, God has just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They came to a point of complete despair and, and inability and God miraculously rescued them. Uh, they didn't have food. He gave them this great miraculous bread manna to eat he sustained them through the wilderness and all of that and now they're about to enter the land and the one thing that god knows he must tell them as they enter the land as he continues to bless them is to be careful that they don't forget god now of all the things you'd think he wouldn't have to tell them after all that he's done is that but he has to because he says listen i know you listen i know that when things begin to go well, you're going to begin to take credit. You're going to think that you did all of this. It's your wisdom and your strength. And you need to know when that happens, you've lost everything. When that happens, you've really lost everything, you see. Um, In fact, this picture that we have of Nebuchadnezzar as the animal isn't simply judgment upon him, but it really is a picture. It really does tell us what is true of the person for whom pride takes over. You don't become more human, you become less. There have been those who say when we, when we try to become more than who we are, we become less than who we are. One author put it like this. He said, a man who thinks he's like God must become a beast to learn he's only a human being. So we become beast-like, we become animal-like when in fact we think that we're God. Now if you were listening, and I'm sure you were, uh, that uh, there are three different times in the midst of the interpretation of this dream Nebuchadnezzar is told why he's going to become an animal. He's told why all of this is going to take place in his life. Notice in chapter 4 and verse 17. This, he says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that is for the purpose of, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, he's saying, he says, this is going to happen. You're going to be this animal until you get it, until the world knows, until the Most High, that is God, shows that he rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills and sets it um, over the, and, and, and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, God can appoint anybody to be Nebuchadnezzar. God can make anybody Nebuchadnezzar. God can make anybody the ruler of the earth if, 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 if he so wills. And, and he's the one in charge of all that. So, so that's the lesson to be learned here. That's what he needs, we need to learn. And then again, we see this in verse uh, 24, middle of verse 24. Um, He says, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know 
that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Um, and it, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And then finally again, as the voice comes to Nebuchadnezzar uh, and, uh, and leads him then into this uh, seven periods, verse 32 And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now why is it so important for us to know that? Why is it so important for God to work in such a way that we would know that he rules and we don't. I mean, why can't we just kind of get along, right? And, you know, we do with our children. Sometimes we sort of let them think like, you know, they're really driving the car when they really aren't because they have a little thing on their on their car seat. And we, we, that's fine. We, we don't have to, st- say, stop the car and say, look, I'm driving this thing, not you. But So why is God... So, well... It isn't because he's a spoiled schoolboy that can't really handle when somebody else gets attention. And it isn't really because, because uh, 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 he's insecure. And uh, because he's insecure, he can't share the glory with anybody else. He wants us to know this first and foremost because it's true. It's true. He is sovereign over all. He does make or break. He does appoint kings and sets them and removes them and all of that. He's sovereign over everything. That's what he, he wants us to know. That Because first of all, it's true. Uh, second of all, if we live as if it isn't, it is the greatest injustice of all. We talk about injustice. The greatest injustice is when a human being disregards God. When a human being thinks himself, herself to be in the place of God and disregards God, forgets God, however you want to put it. You see, there's one author has put it that we become at that point cosmic plagiarists. You see, we think we're the author when we're simply copyists. And so you see there's a great injustice there. And not only that, if we don't get this, we don't understand this, then we're living a lie. We're living this delusion where we think we're really in control, where we think we're really sovereign over these things, you see. And not only that, if if that's the case, then we will lose, as we'll see in a minute, our humanity, really. That we're created in the image of God to reflect him, not ourselves. And we go about reflecting ourselves. Then that which is true of God won't be true of us. Which as Nebuchadnezzar puts it, his works are right, his ways are just. And so you see, if we walk in our ways as opposed to his, those ways won't be right. If we, if we, if we walk in our ways, uh, uh, those ways won't be just. And, and so you see, he says, no, no, no. And not only that, but... We'll lose a great sense and the only sense that we could possibly have of contentedness and peace thinking that it all depends upon us. And if we don't do it, it won't get done. Because we know deep down inside how vulnerable we are. Even Nebuchadnezzar knew deep down inside how vulnerable he was and he couldn't sleep. We know that. And so until we know that there is someone who loves us and someone who is wise and someone who is sovereign, who is over all of this, there can be no peace. There can be no contentedness in the context of our lives. For Nebuchadnezzar, this was simply reasonable. You you notice how he puts it in verse 34. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Now you see the different gaze. A different vantage point. One time he was just looking around, and now he's looking up, if you will. He's lifted to heavens, and he says, Oh, there is something greater than even my eyes can see. 
And my reason returned to me. <laughs> he said, my reason returned to me. Uh, I began to think, and, and not think like I used to, but think rightly now. Uh, I began to, I like the expression, to begin to realize, that is to see things with my real eyes, to realize what is really true. That God is God and I am not. And when he began to see that, you see, he said, now that's reasonable. And it is, it is isn't it? You know, well, our lives are determined, if you will, at least the way we think of it, by, by, by genetics, by our environment, by the choices we make, by circumstances, those kinds of things. Much of that we have literally no control over. Reinhold Niebuhr, a theologian of, a, of the last century, early parts of the last century, put it like this. He said, um, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95%, I don't know how he came to that calculation, but I would just put a, a lot, all right? 95% of what sets the course of, our, of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they're born in who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardware talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. We're not infinite creators, but finite, dependent creatures. Think about all the things that have influenced the course of your life and how many of those you didn't have control over. Where you were born, to whom you were born, your siblings, your parents, what your dad did, how you grew up, where you went to school, uh, how tall you're going to be and are. I'm still hoping. That's why I said going to be. Uh, You know, the color of your eyes, certain skills and giftedness. You know, so often we say, I'm not really like my family. Well, trust me, the older you get, you look in the mirror and you say, dad. Or you say something and your wife says, that's like your father. Or you see indications. How much choice do we really have? Over the... And then the circumstances of our life. You can play this out. You, you can play out the circumstances of life. My dad loves to tell a story about when he was in the army, World War II, and he was in a group called the Replacements. Now, I think if I'm in the army, I never want to be in a group called the Replacements. Right? So he was basically in the second group that was invading Europe. And so as a replacement, he was getting ready to be moved up to the front. And it just so happened that he and a, a number of his friends had just for something to do written on the back of their jackets the, the name of their city and state. And so he had on the back of his jacket our hometown, Elwood City, Pennsylvania. So he's walking and he's going to be taken to the front. And all of a sudden someone says, oh, you're from Elwood City. And the guy says, yes, I'm from Newcastle, which is a neighboring community. And the guy just happened to be a rank above. And he says, you come with me. And he put him in a Jeep with a radio back behind the lines. And it's quite likely, since those replacements were mostly killed, that I'm here today because of a circumstance completely out of my father's control. It just so happened that. So whatever happens in my life that's affected my life and those around me, I had no control over it. I'm here today. <laughs> Not because of any great choice, I suspect. It just reminds me of how little control I've had over the course of my life. And so finally Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, my reason returned. I realized I'm not great. I'm not God. In that sense, you see, of, of humility. You see what pride does to us when we, we are thinking pridefully, what it does, you see, it takes my it takes away my capacity to be really one created in the image of God, to be human. You, you see, I lose my compassion for empathy because of pride. I can't rejoice with those who rejoice when I'm prideful because they have something I don't. 
They're receiving the glory. They're rejoicing in something. I don't have it. And if I'm filled with pride, then I can't take that. Oh, I can pretend like I've been deep down inside. I'm not rejoicing in their good fortune because, because of my pride. I, I can't weep with those who weep. Because you see, in my pride, when they're going through difficulty, I think they deserve it. And I'm saying, didn't happen to me. So, so, so my pride, you see, affects me. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel this, this repentance. He said, listen, you're self-centered. If you want your life to continue well, then you need to repent and be compassionate towards those uh, who are oppressed. And, and, and Because, you see, that, that's real humanity. That's really being created in the image of God. When you pretend that you're God, when you think you're God, you won't be like God at all. Because he's the empathetic one, he's the sympathetic one, he's the compassionate one, he's the caring one, he's the just one. You won't be like that at all. You won't sacrifice for anyone. Not in your pride. When you give up something for someone else's good. Now, you would expect them to give up something for you in your pride. That's where your your thoughts are, but not sacrificing for them. You're wondering why everybody isn't giving to you. Why everybody isn't sacrificing for you. Why everyone isn't paying attention to you. That's what pride does to us. You see, it takes us... From being human from to being really beasts in the midst of it. There's a great expression in Genesis chapter 4. You know, after the sin of Adam and Eve leads then to murder. But, but there's even this other murder that takes place of this man by, named Lamech. Who says that he killed a man for wounding him. Oh, oh that's... Great injustice. The man just wounded him, tripped him, whatever it was, wounded him, and he he killed him for it. Why? Because of his pride. He said, listen, nobody can do anything to me. Anything about my life is worth yours. That makes us beastly, if you will. And it takes away our capacity for real joy. Because you see, when we're filled with pride, we think it's that everything we see out there is by what we've done, and so we've earned whatever we receive. And you see, that can make us happy for a little while. But let's face it, none of us think we get what we deserve. None of us, all of us think we should get more, right? Oh, look what I did. I, I, should, I should be paid more than that. I should get more notoriety than that. You know, uh, all the moms out there, you, you understand this. You know that you don't get much. And you think it is really more that you deserve. And then when you suffer, you think, well, life's unfair. There's no capacity to really embrace suffering and say, good will come from this. This will be worth it. No, no, no. When, when you live in pride, you think I deserve more. Therefore, uh, life is unfair and it just leads, you see, to bitterness. And then the insecurity that comes from pride to realize that, that, that I could lose all of this. And if I lose all of this, then what does that say about me? Especially in the eyes of others, then I, I lose my position. I lose my status in their eyes. You see, pride takes away. This capacity for joy, for peace, for security, trusting in myself, leads to none of that. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar uh, learned that. And he said, all of this was restored to me. Notice verse 36 he says, at the same time, my reason returned to me and, the, and, and, and for the glory of my kingdom and, and my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I established in my kingdom and still I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Notice he says, these things returned to me and were added to me, not that I earned them. You see, the difference between a prideful person And a humble person is gratefulness. It's thankfulness. You see, a humble person is the person that says, I really do have what I don't deserve. That makes for thankfulness. See, we said before that to be a thankful, to be a grateful person isn't the comparing of what I have with what I want. Now, for many of us, we can still be grateful because we have what we want or thereabouts. Uh, it's not a comparison between what we have and what we need. For maybe all of us, 
we can say, well, we should be thankful at that level. But what breeds real thankfulness is a comparison between what we have and what we deserve to have. And you see, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar understood what he deserved to have. Not a big kingdom. Notice his profession of faith in verse middle of verse 34. It says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, he's saying he's the great one. He's the sovereign one. And here's how he understands himself in the midst of that. Verse 35, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He understands it. He gets it. That God is the sovereign one and the great one compared to God all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted, are considered really, really nothing. And he understands all of that. And then, of course, in verse 37, he understands that all the works of God are right and all his ways are just, even though he had been treated severely by God. I mean, think about it. He, he was made a beast, could have been a laughingstock of the whole city. There he was. And everybody would know then that He's not that hot. He's not that wise. He's not that powerful. He's not that great. Look at him. He's out in the field eating grass like, a, like an ox. And his, his, his hair looks crazy. And his nails are long and funny looking. And there he is, you see. And now he's restored to be king. See, after that goes viral, it's really hard to be proud, you see. Here's our king. But he realized that since all this had returned to him, it was a gift. It was a gift. And now he would live a life knowing he didn't deserve it. Now he would live a life giving thanks to the giver for the gift. Now, if you notice something in his restoration, is that before... Uh, he became a beast while he was still proud. The description of his kingdom sounded like the Garden of Eden. Notice verse, uh, middle of verse, uh, or verse 20. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruits abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It's, it's you, you see. O oh, king, you had grown, become strong. Your greatness had grown, reaches to the heaven, your dominions to the end of the earth. You see, Adam and Eve, they would have dominion over the earth, you see. Now, when they sinned because of their pride, they lost it in that sense. Well, why? Why would God take it away? Well, because, you see, it's fine for us to rejoice in our position as made in the image of God, as the pride of God's creation, if you will, the crown of God's creation, if you will, so long as we understand it, so long as we know that he's God and we're not, and we're carrying out as stewards and his plan, and we're, 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 we're reflecting him. You see, all that's great. You see, Adam and Eve should have been living as those thankful to God for the gifts that he had given them as human beings to live in this garden and have dominion over it and all of that. And, and, and then when they sinned and turned against him, then of course, all that became perverted. And that was true for Nebuchadnezzar. But now that he gets it, now that he understands that his position is a gift of God and he, and he, and he rules under God, he says, oh, now you can rule. Now you can have it. In our marriages, pride, of course, can kill us, can make us act like beasts toward one another. The gift of God is to humble us in the midst of that and to say, no, 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 no. It's not your plan. You don't define marriage. You don't define what a husband is. You don't define what a wife is. Now, here's how that is submit to me and I'll restore you. I'll give you this gift of marriage to live it out. Friendships. 
Be humble towards one another and say this friendship is a gift. If you live in pride, you'll just abuse your friend. But if you humble yourself and understand this friendship is a gift, and you're thankful for this friendship, and and you're going to live in this friendship as I lead, as I instruct, as you're in submission to me, I'll give you this friendship, you say. Or these parents, or these children. It's our pride, you see, that destroys those relationships. And until we're humbled and we see life, all that God brings to us as his gift to us, we'll destroy it. But he says, now I'll restore to you. We see it in our successes. You see, there's a false humility that, that when, when something good happens or we, we're successful, we always say, well, so all shucks, you know, that's really not me, blah, 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 blah. But you see, a, a real humble person can accept the good things that come and embrace them and rejoice in them and say, yes, this is from God. Isn't this great? Look what happened, you know? This is wonderful. It's sort of like that overquoted line from the movie Chariots of Fire where the, the runner Eric uh, Little uh, says, when I, I run, I feel God's pleasure. Well, that's really true, isn't it? And he was able to embrace the gift. He didn't have to say, no, you know, I'm not that good, really. I, I run mostly downhill, and that's why I win. No, he said, you know, this is my running is a gift from God, and I can enjoy it. I'm really good at this. And when I really run, I feel his pleasure. And so you see, the the truly humble person who sees all of this as a gift, you see, can embrace it and be restored to it. And and God can say, yes, enjoy this now. You don't have to make apologies for it. Just all of you together, enjoy this great gift that he's, he's given. And so a husband doesn't have to apologize or Say so for, for, for loving his wife well. He can rejoice in the gift that the Lord has given to him. A wife doesn't have to, have to apologize for loving her husband well. She can rejoice in the gift that God has given, you see. We don't have to apologize for doing our jobs well, but we can rejoice in the gift that God has given to us. It's not by our wisdom and our strength that we receive this wealth. We can rejoice in it. I feel guilty about it. We can rejoice in it and use it in such a way that really takes dominion, really pleases the Lord. And of course, we know this, right? Because of the gospel. Because you see, the gospel comes to us and first and foremost, it humbles us, doesn't it? The gospel comes, why did Jesus have to come to die for the sins of sinners? Oh, that tells me something tells me my need, that tells me without him I'm lost. I'm utterly lost, you see. But but then I I realize his love in dying for us, and I realize his love in giving to us his righteousness. And when I embrace that, I'm no longer looking around, I'm looking up. And my pride, you see, should be shattered by the gospel. So then I can really be empathetic. Why? Why? Because I know your need because I have it too. I can really be compassionate because I know your need and I have it too. And if I've been given something that can meet your need, I've been given it only because of the gift of God and so I can share it with you because that's his intention. I can love you well, you see. And together restored with Jesus. The, the, the confession, and I'll end with this. The confession that I, I, I laid out for us this morning is one we've, you've used before. But I don't know if it's appropriate to say you have a favorite confession. It's almost like saying I have a favorite sin I like to confess. But uh, that might be true, I don't know. But, uh, but, uh, but I love this one. I use this one often in my own life because it, 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 it begins with Psalm 51. In a sense, have mercy upon me, God, according to your steadfast love. That's how David began to pour out his confession before the Lord. Have mercy upon me. And in that psalm is David's profession that God's discipline of him, his wrath against David, was justified. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, it's justified. I see it. All your works are just. You had every right to discipline me. But then it moves from 
our confession of our sin to saying, here's my need and Christ fulfills my need. And so it's a long list and it can be longer. However, we want to delineate these things. But it's a recognition of my need. I need his blood to pay for my wrongs, his worthiness to cover my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgression, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my hypocrisy. I need his truth to cover my deceits, his meekness to cover my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his, his faithfulness for my failure, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness uh, uh, to cover my waywardness, his holy life to cover my ungodly ways, his righteousness, my dead works, his death for my life. I need, he supplies. The posture of the humble one, the one who's been humbled, who sees all that we have as a gift from God, not that which we deserve, thankfully. Is I've used I've shared this with you before. If I had a tattoo, this is what it would be. Psalm eighty one ten. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's how we live. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that uh, that would be true of us. Father, it scares me to pray, humble me. But I know that I need it. And I know that you will do it in such a way that will show your gloriousness and your kindness and your love and your truth. So I pray for me, for us as a church, that we would know that you are the sovereign one, that you rule over all, that all that we have is a gift, and that we can live humbly, gratefully. Father, there are many in our congregation struggling with various and the sundry circumstances of life Some of them we can tie to particular decisions, I suppose, that we've made. Frankly, God, many not. And yet we live. And so I pray that you would enable us to know that you're sovereign over all things. And also that you're at work in everything to conform us to the image of Christ. That we might be to his glory. Father, I pray for those who are sick, for those who are suffering, for those who have financial needs, for those who find themselves in relational difficulties, for those who are lonely. I pray, Father, for those who struggle in faith. I pray for those whose emotions are raw. I pray that you would make us all a thankful contented people in who you are and what you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.